Love for Enemies, from the sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Pastor David Hosang. So what happened in the USA this week is related to Jesus's difficult teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Doug addressed last Sunday but it is not identical to the situation that Jesus addressed. In Matthew 5, 38 and 39, Jesus instructs his kingdom citizens that rather than seeking natural, personal retaliation when treated wrongfully, we ought not to resist the evil perpetrator. But we also need to look at scripture holistically as the apostle Paul in Romans 13 teaches us that God establishes governing authorities to resist and punish evildoers with civil justice, not vigilante justice. Sadly, civil justice cannot restore the life of George Floyd. But we love and pray for God's comfort and healing for the Floyd family who are grieving right now. We must also love and pray for Derek Chauvin and his family, as Jesus instructs us to do in our passage today against enormous human, historical, and spiritual odds, we must pray that this tragedy, which reflects the pandemic of racial cancer afflicting our world, including our nation, will be an opportunity for reflection, for realization, for repentance, for reconciliation, for restoration. May we Christians be the first to truly appropriate the Sermon on the Mount vaccine and urge others to be vaccinated with it. Before we get to our passage today, let's pray because we all need it. Abba, thank you for the opportunity of gathering together to be with you and your community, to worship together, to affirm our faith, to hear your word, and to respond to it. We welcome the presence of Jesus, our main teacher. We welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit, our main mentor. We will hear some difficult words from you today, especially if we're harboring negative feelings, nursing, painful wounds from others. 
you're calling us as your people to sometimes do the humanly impossible, to love those who hate us and whom we hate. Give us the courage to trust and obey you today. Amen. So we continue our series in the most well-known and perhaps least understood sermon in the Bible, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. One reason for this misunderstanding regarding the sermon is that it is not addressed to everyone, but only to Jesus's followers, those who have received the salvation gift of the new birth and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Another reason is that even Christ followers find some of this sermon so humanly impossible that we try to engage in what we call interpretive gymnastics to water down the full thrusts of Jesus' words. Throughout history, the church has had its credibility problems. Today in the world, and in the USA in particular, the church is facing a serious credibility crisis. And at the risk of losing some in the audience right now, I offer a humbling historical assessment from strong supportive evidence that overall, the church in the USA in recent times has been on the wrong side of history by its support or silence on the issues of slavery and civil rights. And now, the white, even yellow and brown, and perhaps some black churches, particularly evangelical ones, are in grave danger again of being on the wrong side of history on today's elephant in the room, the issue of race. And may I remind you that this is not a political issue, but a biblical one of justice and mercy. See, for example, Micah 6, verse 8. The clear evidence of the book of Acts indicates that many of the early Christians, who were predominantly Jews, were blindly racist against Gentiles. And God needed to use supernatural events, major conflicts, evangelistic successes, and theological debates to lead the church in embracing God's truth that the ground is level, completely level, at the foot of the cross. If you have any questions about this, talk to me later. But let's just deal with credibility issues on a personal level. Granted that some non-Christians use this as a smokescreen, but there is much truth in their claim that professing Christians are no better than them, sometimes worse in the way that they live their lives and relate to people. Honestly, many professing Christians hopefully, not you and me, are the worst advertisements for Jesus and the Christian faith. 
Despite Christians' claims that they have been transformed by their new birth in Jesus and are being transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, there is sometimes very little evidence of this. And this begs the question as to why non-Christians should become Christians if Jesus doesn't seem to make any positive difference anyway. For example, Christians, like non-Christians, display major anger issues at home, and you may have been a perpetrator or recipient of this rage. Christians, like non-Christians, are guilty of adulterous relationships or porn addictions, and you may have inflicted or suffered this pain. Christians, like non-Christians, are getting divorced at roughly the same rate in the USA, suggesting that Jesus doesn't really make a difference. Christians, like non-Christians, are equally unreliable and flaky and don't come through on their promises, often without conscience or apology. Christians, like non-Christians, can be equally vindictive and vengeful, retaliating blood for blood and fire for fire. Christians, like non-Christians, love people who love them and people of their own kind, but neglect, despise, and even hate others as the enemy. Now, if you are alert, you may have noticed that I just summarized the six issues or antitheses that Jesus highlights in Matthew 5 to illustrate that his true disciples, his kingdom citizens, ought to be very different from merely regular or religious people. And frankly, if I were so discouraged by professing Christians, and pastors do have their moments, and didn't believe that God's supernatural transformation of the new birth in Christ and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit could make a difference. I would end my sermon now and send us all home for practicing a weekly ritual and charade. But despite the fake and failing Christians out there, we choose to believe in the God of the resurrection, the Jesus of salvation, and the spirit of power. By way of brief summary, Doug led us through the fifth of Jesus' six antitheses last Sunday. And rather than focusing on the natural reaction of revenge, retaliation, and self-preservation when we are wronged personally, Jesus' life and teaching counsels us that as his disciples, we ought to focus on the supernatural response of de-escalation, freedom, and generosity, responding in loving, unexpected, disarming ways. Jesus calls us to focus not on my rights as a human being, but on my responsibilities as a kingdom citizen. In some ways, there's an ascending progression, a raising of the bar between antithesis five last week and antithesis six this week. 
And this says, five is a negative command. Do not resist an evil doer. And this is six is a positive command. Love your enemies and pray for them. The sixth and perhaps climactic antithesis may be the most important and the most difficult one to obey. So let's now look at the scripture of Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this passage, Jesus describes three types of lovers and three kinds of love. One, non-religious people display human love. Two, religious people distort God's love. And three, Jesus' people display or demonstrate God's love. So let's now look at the first type of lovers and love. Non-religious people display human love. Verse 4 to 6 says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? So Jesus states a self-evident truth. Even despised, dishonest people like tax collectors love those who love them. Tax collectors were regarded by their fellow Jews as traitors and crooks. Traitors because they were collecting taxes unlawfully for the foreign godless power of Rome, their hated foreign oppressors. oppressors. Crooks because they were collecting taxes exorbitantly for, from their own fellow Jews for their own greedy financial enrichment. So Jesus is saying here that if the lowest of low lives display love towards their own, we earn no brownie points if we display normal, natural love towards our own people. Natural human love is often an if love or a because love. I will love you if you love me in return. I will love you because you are loving, loving, lovely, and lovable to me. So basically, a Jew loving another Jew is not a big deal. It's like a tax collector loving another tax collector. 
a Korean loving another Korean, a Korean Christian loving another Korean Christian from the same church. So even despised, dishonest people love those who love them. But also verse 47 says, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So even pagan Gentile dogs are hospitable towards each other. As a footnote, the NIV New International Version translation translates the Greek word ethnikoi as pagans here though the simplest translation would actually be Gentiles, non-Jews. That being said, Jews regarded Gentiles, that's us, as goyim, pagans, dogs. So a Jew being friendly to another Jew is no big deal. It's like an ethnic person being friendly to someone of their own ethnicity a Christian being friendly towards another Christian who holds the same theological beliefs and political stances. So the question to us as Christians, as kingdom citizens, is the question Jesus asked. What are we doing more than others? How are we living to higher and better standards that are countercultural? and seemingly unnatural, like loving those who are despised, loving those who don't love us in return, loving those outside our ethnic group who may ignore us, be disrespectful of us, be unwelcoming of us, and even hostile to us. And if you happen to be listening and you're a non-religious person, turned off by many professing Christians, but impressed by some or a few Christians, please continue listening, because Jesus offers you this higher and better life today. So non-religious people display human love. Secondly, and unfortunately, religious people distort God's love. Verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As we shall soon see, Jesus here repeats a popular truncated command from scripture plus a distorted addition. This command is very important. It comes from the scripture of Leviticus 19.18. In responding to an entrapment question from the Pharisees regarding which command was the greatest, Jesus declared, love God with your all, and that the second greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. But the popular and religious belief got it wrong on three counts. Firstly, words are misinterpreted in scripture. Their Jewish understanding of neighbor was wrong. In fairness to them, at the beginning of the chapter of Leviticus 19, verse 1, it explicitly states that these instructions are addressed to the entire assembly of Israel, 
So neighbor was naturally understood to mean our peeps, our fellow Israelites. But remember Jesus's well-known parable of the Good Samaritan given in response to this hotshot lawyer who asked him who was his neighbor. Neighbor was not the Jewish priest, the religious leader. Neighbor was not the Jewish Levite, the lay associate, who both did not stop to help this Jewish man who had been mugged and robbed by bandits. Neighbor was a half-breed Jew, a Samaritan, a hated follower, a hated foreigner, I mean, someone considered an enemy who stopped to help. So the moot question is not merely who is my neighbor, but to whom am I being neighbor? Neighbor is a fellow human being who has needs to be met or who meets the needs of another human being created equally in the image of God, not just someone who belongs to my own race, rank, or religion. With this expanded understanding of neighbor, this includes, for example, Asian American, Latino American, African American, Caucasian Americans, everyone, including those outside my ethnic group. And the question today is, so which neighbor or neighbors is the Holy Spirit challenging you to love when it's hard to love them as you sign off today? So words are misinterpreted in scripture. A second wrong belief was that words are subtracted from scripture. Leviticus 19 states, love your neighbor as yourself. Regardless of whether we take the modern or the traditional interpretation of this command, excluding these words as yourself cheapens this love to a mere generic love, rather than intensifying it in the sense of look out for your neighbor as you look out for yourself, or accept your neighbor as you ought to accept yourself. So make sure that you know scriptures well enough so that when someone from a sect or a cult tries to pull a fast one on you by only quoting scripture partially or selectively, you can sniff this out like a smart biblical bloodhound. A third and perhaps more serious belief was words are added to scripture. Nowhere in scripture is the negative command to hate your enemy. This sentiment was expressed, for example, by the Jewish Qumran community, famous for what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Their community rule instructed them to love those within the community, the children of light, and hate those outside the community, the children of darkness. And if you wanted to be a theological attorney, you may arrive at this conclusion with the following logic. God hates evil. Evil is demonstrated by an evildoer who is therefore an enemy of God 
and whom God hates. Therefore, we ought to hate God's enemy, who is also our enemy. For the iron of this is that the holy, loving God hates evil deeds, but loves the evildoers. Like we've often heard, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Like parents hate their children's sin, but love their child. And so should we follow the example of Jesus. Scripture actually tells us a different story regarding an enemy. Later, again, in Leviticus 19, God's people are instructed that the foreigner, the alien residing among you, must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. After giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, one of the civil laws that follows in Exodus 23 states that if an Israelite saw an enemy's ox or ass string, he ought to get it and return it to the enemy. This is very similar to the command in Deuteronomy 22 to return a brother's ox, sheep, or ass that is string. Proverbs 25:21 outlines humane treatment of enemies like providing them with food and drink, an idea that Paul picks up in Romans 12. And we could go on. So that's why it's important for us to know what scripture says and means so that we're not tricked by culture or cults into falsely believing what scripture does not say. For example, Christian slave owners in the United States and more recently Christians in the Dutch Reformed Church in previously apartheid South Africa spurously misinterpreted the account of the curse of Ham, Noah's son in Genesis 9 as justification for continuing the enslavement of blacks. So what's to prevent stuff like this happening to us? Truth about love is not found in places like social media polls or opinions, but in scripture, the word of God. This means that if we're going to experience and understand God's love for us and for others, as well as our love for God and for others, humanly difficult and impossible it may seem sometimes, we need to clearly know what God expects us and the resources that he will provide us with. It's funny, but not funny, when we laugh about how dunce we are about knowing God's revealed word. Like we may laugh at how dunce we are about knowing our marriage partner or close friend. And if that is true, there is danger ahead. So for our optimal transformation in Christ, we have no option but to know the word of the Lord well, or more accurately, know the God of the word well. So what about believing or rationalizing the lie? 
that scripture teaches that it is okay. It's justified to hate your enemies, someone who hates you and has done something hateful to you. But that's not what scripture teaches. That's a natural reaction, easy to do. But Jesus is calling us, the spirit is prompting us to respond differently. And you know it, or you may be resisting it. One story that comes to mind is a friend of mine who was raped by her father. That messed her up for a long while. And it's understandable that she hated that selfish, self-centered jerk. Later, she became a Christian and God began transforming her in major ways. God brought a loving, caring man into her life. He soon proposed and they made plans to get married. For her own health and safety, she had not had any contact with her dad and her dad never contacted her to apologize or ask for forgiveness. For the few family members who knew of the situation, who were not Christians, their emotional and even reasonable advice was to keep hating that SOB, keep excluding him from her life, and not even invite him to her wedding. I'll soon share with you later what happened. So, religious people distort God's love by twisting his character and words. And finally, Jesus' people demonstrate God's love in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here Jesus begins the proper interpretation of the scriptures which have been misinterpreted, misquoted, and misapplied. In the similar Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, Jesus expands this more fully. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So here we have Jesus describing the character of love. And the question is, so what does real love mean and what does it look like? The early Christians adopted and reinterpreted the Greek love word group, agape and agapao, and filled it with their own meaning based on Jesus' teaching and example of love, the initiating, unselfish, costly, unconditional, unearned love exemplified by God the Father and Jesus the Son. Two classic love scriptures illustrate this love of another kind. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love is actions. Jesus commands us, do good to those who hate you. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, God did us good by reconciling to himself, by giving his son to die for sins. Love is not just actions, but love is also words, words to enemies and words to God. Words to enemies, bless those who curse you. Is that our natural response? Certainly not, but is that your response to your enemy? There's also love in words. Jesus counsels us to pray for those who persecute us. As the nails were driven in the wrists of Jesus and in his feet, Jesus modeled this by praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So who are your enemies? And whom has God called you to pray for? Sometimes they may be your frenemies in the church. Sometimes they may be your family members. And before you protest these words to Jesus, remember that oftentimes when you say, I can't, you really mean, I won't. But also, whenever you say, I will, this comes in God's timing and in your timing. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. In saying these words, Jesus explains the evidence of love. Very briefly, Jesus is not saying that this is a condition. If you love your enemies, you'll become a child of God, but a confirmation. When you love your enemies, you reflect the family, belonging, and likeness of your loving Heavenly Father. Verse 45b, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. By saying this, Jesus explains the grace or the common grace of love. John Calvin actually describes this as common grace, God's gracious favor, God's gift to all creation, distinguished from God's gift of salvation that must be received and appropriated. The sun shines on both good and evil people, not in selective patches on good people. The rain falls on both the righteous and unrighteous, not only in select geographical areas on the righteous people. Aren't you glad that you and I are not God controlling the earth's distribution of sunshine and rain? God's common grace is extended to all who are created in God's own image. Verse 48, you be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Finally, Jesus gives the goal of love. Here the U in Greek is plural and it is very emphatic. The idea of God's children imitating him is not new. Again, we go back to Leviticus 19. God's people are called to imitate God in holiness, something that Peter picks up in 1 Peter chapter 1. Clearly, Jesus is not expecting sinless perfection. For example, in the sermon in the Lord's Prayer, in chapter 6, Jesus instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We haven't reached perfection yet. Now, very briefly, there are two interpretations of being perfect. It's being perfect in love, the immediate context, or being perfect in all of life, including those six representative areas. Regardless of which interpretation is correct here, the goal of Jesus' disciples, you and I, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, is to emulate, to imitate God's character, including love in all areas of our life. The Greek word for perfect, teleos, can also be translated full-grown or mature. So being perfect means maturing and developing an inward righteousness of God from the gift of the transforming, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. One very touching visual aid of love of an enemy was illustrated not so long ago by Brant Jean, younger brother of Botham Jean, who was gunned down in his own Dallas apartment by police officer Amber Geyer, who mistook her apartment for his. At her court sentencing, Brant Jean expressed his love his forgiveness, his desire for Amber to accept Jesus as the best decision she could ever make. And he also requested from the judge that he be given a permission to give Amber a hug. Permission was granted and with a sobbing hug, Amber Geyer received it from Brandt who demonstrated Jesus' com command to love and pray for enemy. To continue my story, my friend decided to contact her dad and arrange for a meeting to confront him about his evil, destructive act. Briefly, when they met, she shared how his sinful actions had wounded her deeply how she had found Jesus, and how she had forgiven him, and how she also wanted him to know Jesus as well. Obviously, he was shamed, gave a half apology. But because she had forgiven him and was praying for his salvation, she even asked him to walk her down the aisle on her wedding day. Two years later, when she heard, when she had a birthday party, a one-year-old birthday party for her child, her father was also at the party. 
My personal inclination was to avoid him. But because I know, I knew that God and his daughter loved and forgave him. It was easier for me to have a cordial conversation with him, my friend's enemy, as well as mine. Like some of you, you may have less painful and dramatic challenges loving your enemy. For example, last week I was angered when I discovered the clueless racism inflicted on one of my nieces by another family member. Humanly, there doesn't seem to be much hope for listening or learning. And my natural inclination is to disobey Jesus' command, not love and pray for that family member, positively that is, not praying the plagues on him. But I made a decision to continue loving and praying for him and not to cancel him. Some of us are dealing with people who have hurt us directly, deeply, and our wounds may still be very raw, inflicted by a parent, a child, a family member, a former spouse, or friend. And Jesus is calling us to do the humanly impossible with his help, to love and pray for that enemy. Let us pray. Father, this may have been a very tough sermon for some of us. We probably had feelings that we would never, ever forgive someone. We would hate them to the grave. But we recognize that we are challenged by Jesus, our Lord and Master, that as his followers, as people who have received the new life, as people who have the gift and the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, you can give us the power to love the unlovable, to love the enemy. So Father, we thank you that you've spoken. We pray that you, we'd allow your Holy Spirit to speak powerfully to us and that we'd respond to you in glad obedience. Thank you for your words. Thank you that you promised to be with us through the storm and through the difficult times of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take out our app as we look at our communication card for our next steps. We have five or six next steps here. Step number one, I am committing my life to Jesus for the first time so that I may demonstrate God's love, not merely human love. Secondly, I am committing to regularly ingesting, faithfully interpreting, 
and consistently obeying scripture. Thirdly, I will show love this week to an enemy by praying positively for them, saying a kind word, or doing a kind deed for them. Number four, I will register and participate in sacred space on May 2nd to contribute to racial reconciliation. Number five, I will attend a call to covenantal solidarity on May 23rd at 2 p.m. at the Bergen County Courthouse in Hackensack. And sixthly, I will register to attend Metro in-person service at Greco next Sunday. <laughs>